Welcome to Beyond the Surface. On our podcast, we highlight underrepresented voices in architecture. We'll humanize architects by uncovering who they are beyond the surface. Hi, I'm your host, Alex Sanchez, representing Illinois Tech's student chapter of the National Organization of Minority Architects. Today's episode is a special episode with our guest, Walmer Salvedra, with the organization HumanScale. HumanScale is a nonprofit organization founded in 2018 by a group of architecture students with the goal of positive change in communities. Walmer is the co-founder and executive director of HumanScale. He is responsible for overseeing day-to-day activities and strategic planning of the organization. Walmer graduated from the University of Illinois at Chicago in 2019 with a Bachelor of Arts in Architecture Studies degree. He currently works for a real estate development and construction management firm in Chicago. So Walmer, how are you feeling today? I feel good, yeah. Well, thank you for being with us today. We heard about human skill from Omar. Okay. And he told us all about the type of projects you guys do. And you guys were very interesting. And we wanted to know more about you. So we decided to bring you on today and to talk more about who you guys are as an organization and who you are as a person, what brought this on. And we'll get into those questions in a second. Okay, yeah. But for now, before we talk about human skill, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, so I guess I'll start in the beginning. So I was born in Guatemala and I came over here when I was seven years old. My mom brought us here to Chicago. I lived a couple years here. Then we moved to Maryland. Then we moved back to Chicago. But basically, I grew up in the south side of the city near Midway Airport. And I went to a high school in Englewood called Lindblom. And so I think that's kind of that path, like growing up over there, migrating over here, I think that has shaped my identity a lot in terms of being like first generation college student, uh, first one in my family to graduate. And so I think I've always had this mentality of working hard, getting good grades kind of, and doing a lot of things to try to get ahead and trying to um, yeah, just have a better life. So I think that really did shape my identity, that migration path. And then I think that going to a high school in Englewood, um, Englewood is one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the city, but there's also a lot of vacant land, deteriorated homes, vacant homes, gun violence, so things like that. So when I was going, I would commute to school on the CTA, public transportation, Walking to school, I saw a lot of that deterioration and I would ask myself, why does this part of the city look like this? But when you go downtown or you go to the north side, it doesn't look like that. Where does that happen? Why? Like, is it money or something? I started researching and where does the money go? Where does money come from? Or to what communities does it go into? And just like politicians always saying, oh, yeah, we'll fix things, but it never happens. So that curiosity, like I started questioning those things just by being at that high school. It's interesting to see kind of like where the idea of architecture came from. Mm-hmm. But I understand that too. I grew up in Las Vegas okay. and I do remember like moving a lot and starting to like realize is those who had houses, those who didn't have houses, like kind of like the difference between a house and an apartment mm-hmm. and realizing where I belong necessarily or where it felt like I belong so when you start to realize those differences in the built environment it makes you want to do something about it Mm -hmm. so how did you end up in architecture so at Limbrum High School 
I took a class. Uh, Lindblom High School is a selective enrollment school. So they have their typical programming, like classes, or like standard classes, like, you know, geometry, trig, and things like that. But they also have other curriculum, which is the one that I took is focused around engineering. And so the first class we had was engineering design, principles for engineering design. And we started sketching just common items that were in the classroom, like mouses, keyboards, things like that. And we started learning about the reverse engineering process. So if you take apart keyboard, then you can learn about the interior of it. And we started drawing it, sketching it, an isometric view, an elevation. And I really liked doing that. And we started creating our own products. Mine, I think, was like a fork that looked like a motorcycle or something. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> so I started learning about that. Oh, we started modeling it in 3D as well. And I really enjoyed doing that. And so I Googled what fields, what in professions use 3D software. And architect was at the top of it. And I remember that early on, my grandmother would say that when I was young, I would be sketching like houses with doors, windows, stairs. And from a young age, she was telling me that, oh, you're, yeah, you're going to be an architect. So I think I like rediscovered that path, I guess, when I took that engineering class. And also part of that engineering class later on was renovating a community garden in Inglewood. And that was like outside of school. So we would meet uh, after class and like Saturdays and Sundays and we would go and we were expanding it from like 10 planter beds to like 100. We designed a pergola and we had design teams with different students had different titles. So that really got me into design and community design. And I started learning more about architecture like that. So when I came out of high school, I really kind of understood what I liked, which was architecture. And then I ended up at UIC in the School of Architecture. And I picked UIC because of just scholarships that I could get there and things like that. So yeah, that's, that's my path into architecture. And I heard that at UIC, you ended up like restarting the NOMAS chapter, right? Yeah. So the first year at UIC, I was part of AIAS. Uh, I was the Freedom by Design director, and we did a community project in that garden in Englewood that I first did in high school. We built some planter beds there. And then I met Jason Pugh at a like holiday celebration for NOMA. And he was like, hey, like, where are you studying? I told him UIC. He's like, oh, like, they don't have a NOMA's chapter there. I was like, no, I don't think so. I'm part of the AIAS one. He's like, oh, are you interested in starting one? I was like, yeah, why not? And so that's kind of how it started, that idea. And so he's like, yeah, I'll put you in contact with people that you need to talk to. You have to go through this process, do all this paperwork. So I did. Uh, and then I, I gathered a couple of my friends that were in architecture, and we just started the chapter. And yeah, it's still active to, to this day, I guess. But yeah, it, it used to exist back in... I don't know, the 90s or 2000s, I believe. And then it went away. And so, yeah, we reactivated it. And then we did uh, that summer that we had the chapter. We went back to Inglewood and we did another project in that garden space with AIAS as well. It seems like from the beginning, you're always so community focused and trying to build that environment around you. Like even when you were at UIC, you built NOMAS when you were in Inglewood. You helped build your community literally. Mm -hmm. So going from that, what sparked the interest to create Human Scale? I think the Human Scale started from when we went back to Inglewood to do the community planter beds. That's where I met Ailen, Jorge, Sue, and Kasha. And that's really, that was the founding core of Human Scale. 
but we were not thinking about a nonprofit when we were doing that work. We were just doing it because we saw good in it. We were applying our design skills and we fundraised to build those beds that they're like a thousand dollars, like materials. But from there, uh, we had a mentor that threw the idea out there. Hey, have you thought about turning this into like a nonprofit work where you can get donations from people that are not related to you or you can apply for grants? You can do this at a bigger scale. And we're like, oh, yeah, maybe at first we were not interested. But I think later on when we kept doing that work, we realized that, yeah, we could do bigger things like we could be creating more impact for more people. And being a nonprofit organization kind of creates that platform for you to do that. So we sat down at a, uh, I, I think we sat down at a Wingstop, but my friend said that it was a McDonald's. <laughs> but basically we sat down in one restaurant and we, we were like, hey, are we going to do this or not? And we did. So that's, <laughs> so that's where human skills started, like uh, one of those chain restaurants. We sat down and we talked about what's our mission going to be. We have to figure out mission, structure, all these different things. We started reading books, reading about IRS laws, all these things that you have to learn to start that process. Yeah, and that's how human skill began. That's very cool. Yeah. I love how it began in like, <laughs> either it was a Wingstop or it was a McDonald's. Yeah, they tell me it's McDonald's, but I don't know. I remember like a, being in a Wingstop. <laughs> <laughs> so you started, you have your mission. But how did you start getting it to work? I think the first project that we did, like our big project that we did for human scale was the, the hive in Pilsen. And that was a $15,000 job, right? So we went from a $500, $1,000 planter bed to like 15000 for this outdoor classroom storage shed. Um, and just having that jump back, back then, I was like, oh, like, that's crazy. Like, how do we do this? Like, <laughs> it's, it's real money, like $15,000. Oh my God. So it brought more like pressure, I guess, to get it right so that you don't mess up because it's a bigger project. So we started learning more about like, zoning codes, like permits, things like that, subcontractors. And we started developing also more formal design processes and also just how we worked together as an organization. It was five of us. And that first project, all five of us were designing and building, which we learned later to be uh, like too many chefs in the kitchen type of thing. So ideally we want to have like three people in, in one project from human scale. And then that's a good balance of people providing design ideas, developing the design. Otherwise it starts getting a little too, like too many people with too many opinions and ideas, and it can slow down the process and make it inefficient. But through that project, we learned how to establish those groups. We learned what works for us. Uh, we also started thinking about our mission more. At first, our mission was doing like any size project. As long as we're impacting one person, we're good with that. But then we had to really think about long-term, like what at the core of human skill, what do we do? And we came up with, we build functional, beautiful and meaningful public spaces. And another big component is where do we build them? Well, we build them in historically disinvested neighborhoods across the city. And that's really what human scale is. But that came from doing projects and figuring it out. Because in the beginning, you have an idea and that you start that idea, but then you start learning different things that kind of grow you or shape the organization. And how did you guys balance being student entrepreneurs while also being designers? Yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
so in school, yeah, in, in college, we were doing human skill part-time. We were students and some of us had part-time jobs as well or internships. So it is a lot of work. We do most of our work in the evenings and weekends, especially the construction happens in the weekends, in the summers. It's just, I think what helps is that we all have a passion for the work that we do. So when we're working, it doesn't feel like we're working. It feels like we're designing, we're having fun, like it's for a good cause. And when we're building, it's the same thing. Like we're out there building and sometimes, you know, it can get really tiring and draining because like if you're in week 10 of construction for the entire summer, like you haven't really have a summer to like hang out and have fun with people, you know, outside of like work. So it can be tough in that way. But I think our passion fuels the amount of work and time and effort that we put into the organization. And we also have to be, we have to, again, establish certain like procedures or processes like when do we meet do we meet monthly when do we have design meetings and we have to be very organized with our time and also very efficient with our design process so that it's not too overwhelming so yeah that's the entrepreneurship (laughs) it's not it's not easy it's it's i think you have to have the passion or be very interested in community work and design to continue doing it And now we're at a point where we have to figure out, like, moving forward, in order for human scale to grow, do we have to kind of restructure ourselves to maybe, like, like, do we need people who are, like, 100% passionate about design and community work to grow human scale? Or could they just be focused on design? Or, like, who can join the organization? Who, who, uh, like, what person are we looking for to grow human skill and participate in these uh, these projects? I don't know that question. I don't know the answer right now, but it's a realistic question because not everyone is going to be as passionate as the people who originally founded the organization. And so we have to really figure that component out. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like those are some of the challenges that come with a growing organization, kind of like understanding what goals and how your decisions align with those goals and whether your goals are to either grow the organization or to keep the keep, I'm not yeah gonna. like yeah the, and that's like we've made a decision like three years ago to keep the organization at a certain level right we didn't want it to get too overwhelming we were doing 10 projects a year like a million dollars worth of work like that's unmanageable doing it part-time that would require full-time staff if your projects are a million dollars, you need like you need full-time employees, healthcare, like all these different things. In that case, knowing the type of skill that you want, how do you guys find partners and other community organizations to partner with? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> most of it comes from, I think, word of mouth. So people see the $15,000 project I was talking about in Pilsen, that came from the owners or like the managers of that garden visiting Englewood and seeing the work that we did with those planter beds. And so they saw them, they're like, oh, like we want to do this in our garden. Who did it? And that's how we got connected with them. And then from that Pilsen project, we were featured on Chicago Sun-Times and AIA Chicago, I think that's the magazine. So that project, like just being on newspapers and things like that, that's a very circulated project as well. That gets people to ask, like, oh, who designed this? It looks different than other projects. Uh, So that project looks like a beehive. That was the idea is to take this beehive and make it a large scale so that the honeycomb structure could act as seats, tables, benches, storage spaces, and cubbies. 
And we put like plexiglass on the hexagon pattern so that when the sun hits it, it looks like honey with the oh. colorful shadows. So when people see stuff like that, they ask who did it. And that's where most of our projects come from and partnerships is people reaching out. Hey, I have a project in North Landell. Are you interested in doing it? And then we meet with them and figure out like what they have in mind. And then also we've done projects where Crooks and Sexton, they were leading the 79th and Chatham project, Mahalia Jackson Court. They were uh, turning this vacant lot into this pop court. And so they reached out to us because of our work in communities and they asked us to be kind of like the landscape consultants in a way. Uh, and so we designed with them the interior of the courtyard, like where the trees go. And we have this stepping log pattern that is supposed to follow like musical notes in a way based on the heights of the logs to relate to the Mahalia Jackson component of the space. So mostly it's just people and organizations reaching out to us, which is also tricky because if we want to be at a certain growth or a certain level or size of the organization that's manageable and sustainable, then we have to select the projects that we can take on, which has been tricky because there's a lot of need and a lot of projects out there. And so limiting it to three projects a year it's, it can be tough to say no to community groups. In some ways, we try to do what we can. Maybe we do design services and not the construction component. Maybe we create the design so that they can fundraise as well and get more funds so they can hire like a general contractor to do it. We're finding different ways to provide services, but not really take on a whole project like that. And when you finally have these partners and clients, what does your design process look like? Yeah, so the first meeting we have with them is to identify what the project is, right? What their location, the size of the project, how many people from the community do they want to involve, who the community is. Sometimes it's people from the block. Other times it's people that are part of a, like an organization, things like that. So we identify who the community stakeholders are. And then we talk with them, like what our process is. Typically, the first meeting we have with the community is a design charrette. So we send out a survey before the design charrette asking certain questions about what the community lacks, what the needs are, what are some good things that are happening in the community, what are some bad things, what does a community space look like to you? So we send these questions and collect all these answers before this charrette so we can identify commonalities across all the responses. And when we come to the design charrette, we tell them, hey, we sent out this survey. Here are the three common goals that most people agree on. I think if we focus on these three things, it could lead to a very meaningful and impactful project. So we have the design charrette. They sketch ideas. They look at precedents, images of work that has happened in other places. And we collect that feedback from them. From there, we go into a design session, Human Scale does. And we work internally to create a couple of design options that we can present to the community at a community forum. That community forum, we try to have the same people from the design charrette participate in that. And we summarize what happened at the design charrette. Here are the design options. What do you think? Is it good? Is it bad? What are some qualities that we can take from each design? Maybe we missed a mark on, and it, it's not good and we have to redesign. And then after that community forum, we go into another design session where we try to create the final 
design concept. And then we present that at the final community meeting. And we summarize the entire process and we show them the final design. And most of the time, they're good with that design. They agree and they want to move forward. And I think it's maybe because the design is good, but also because a lot of groups that we work with, they've been wanting projects for a long time, right? They've seen vacant lots sitting vacant for years. Yep. And they they have ideas already, but they want to get started with construction. So it's that need to start seeing results like physically. And then we go into the uh, construction phase where we start planning the entire construction. We create a construction budget, a schedule. We have build days. Some work we subcontract out, things that are big scope. Like if we do excavation, then it's easier to hire an excavator to come in and set what we need. And then we identify build components that we can do with the community. And that's how we get the projects built. And then at the end, we have a final ribbon cutting ceremony. So <laughs> it's a long process. No, yeah, that, that's architecture. Yeah. Um, that is a long process, but it's worth it. It really is to be able to go through seeing a vacant lot to seeing a complete project on that area or just like the types of projects that you guys do to see the impact that you guys have on people. And from there, I actually want to talk about the Chicago Architecture Biennial exhibit that you guys did. Mm. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so the Biennial, they have, well, the organization that puts together the Architecture Biennial, they have a studio in the Cultural Center downtown. And in that studio, they have different exhibits from different architects. And so I think it was through one community member or someone in the community that mentioned human scale to them. So they looked us up and they told us that they had this studio space that they wanted to put an exhibition in there for a couple months until the biennial started. So they had this space for a couple months vacant. And so they asked us if we can come up with an exhibit idea. And then we presented that idea to them and, and we installed it. But basically our exhibition was focused around reimagining public libraries. So the space, we had different components. So the first component was on this glass wall, we had these vinyl graphics with questions about what are some assets in your community, questions that made people think about their community's culture, their needs, the wants, cultural assets as well, and how their communities can be improved. And so they had these transparent post-it notes that they could put on the glass wall with their ideas, sketches, whatever they want. And there was a lot of participation from it. So every week we would go and collect the post-it notes with sketches and, and things like that. Most of them were good. Some had like negative things, um, <laughs> <laughs> like inappropriate things. So the idea behind that glass wall was so that we can get people to start thinking about these questions before engaging in the exhibit. Then on another wall, there's these puzzle pieces that we printed out. The puzzle pieces are like five inches by five inches and printed on the puzzle pieces are graphics of different types of materials like water, vegetation, also programming things like somebody with headphones and a radio or maybe someone cooking. Different programs that you can find in spaces, cultural spaces or community centers, things like that. And different materials, different colors. And so the idea was to ask people to put together these puzzle pieces so from these puzzle pieces, the idea was to ask people to imagine what a space in a library can look like 
where all these puzzle pieces touch each other. So if you have a space with like someone cooking and you have sand touching, right? What does that look like? In a, <laughs> you know, it's a little like weird. Are you going to have a space in the library where someone's cooking like, on sand? No, like maybe you try to imagine an actual space that could be a functional space in a community center or a public library that have those different textures and programs. And we asked them to document that with a photo and for them to leave it on these tables and modular elements that we created. So throughout the exhibition, we took photos, documented those structures. We also encouraged them to post on social media what their ideas are. Our goal for the entire exhibition was not to have someone design a library, like reimagine what a library of the future looks like. That was not what we were trying to do. What we were trying to do is get people to start thinking about these things without needing the skills to design it on paper or for them to learn about section cuts because we were not in the space. So it was just for people to think about these things instead of actually like sitting there and designing sketches and things like that. We found it more productive to do what we did. We took it down and now we're thinking of how can we display all the ideas that everyone that participated in the exhibit, how can we display that? How can we use that data to do something good with it? We're going to be brainstorming then. I feel like that the exhibit idea was really good. As someone who has been into like multiple exhibits, my favorite ones are probably the ones where I also get to participate. Mm -hmm. And I feel like something that Human Scout does is they listen to the people that they're designing for. So you guys really represented that by letting them also participate in your guys' exhibit because they also felt like they were being listened to. And so I think that's also very powerful. So going forward, what advice would you give to students and designers who are interested in community-driven projects? I think the first thing is to look at what skills they have, what things they're good at, what are their interests, and try to find a way that they can use those skills to impact their community or other communities. It doesn't have to be, for, for us and for me, it was about designing and building structures. But to some people, architecture, they derive architecture from painting or from different ways of seeing architecture, right? So to them, they might be more interested in painting and murals and things like that and finding ways to use those skills to create good impact in communities. And another thing is going out into the community and finding ways to meet the people there, see what other people are doing and I think a good amount of time you'll find that there are opportunities out there to use the skills that you have and be part of a project or maybe even lead your own project. I like that a lot. But before we end, I have the hardest question. What are your future plans? Yeah, I don't know. I think that that's something I've been asking myself is like what I want to do because I mean, one option would be to do human skill full time, right? And get maybe other people in the organization to do the same thing. And we grow and we can become big in Chicago or whatever. Or maybe it's finding a way to be part of human skill while having other people come in. Maybe like I'm part of the board of directors for human skill only. And then there's an actual staff that we hired to do human skill. Like there's so many ways to run an organization and to be part of that organization for me. But I also have other interests outside of human scale, like real estate development. My full-time job is construction management. 
So do I want to focus on that? Maybe I go back to school and get an MBA or, you know, I, I don't know, like there's so many different options. But I think in life, you should follow your interests. Like your life is like in chapters. So your life doesn't have to be like all architecture all the time. I think you could focus on architecture for a portion of your life. And then if you want to switch, then you go do that. Like there's no rules to how you live your life. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> Maybe I'll retire in a farm or something. I don't know, like grow some vegetables. No, I'm kidding. But um, <laughs> I don't know what the answer is. I think we're doing a lot of good work in communities and people know who we are now in those communities. So it's important work that we're doing. And it's like we have to think about what we want for the next five years. I feel like when it comes to future plans, it's probably like the hardest thing to think about because there's so many different routes you can take. And as you kind of just described now, but I wish you the best. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and no matter what you or human skill does, you'll have so many supporters who will always be supporting you. So yeah, good luck in the future. And we also thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you for taking your time out of this day to be here and have this conversation with us. It was a nice conversation. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, thanks. I think having this podcast, like it's really cool. And I think that you, you guys should keep doing it. Well, thank you for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you. And I want to thank everyone who is listening. We release our episodes monthly. You can find us on Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. I want to thank our producer, Caleb Kwok, and WIIT for making this podcast possible. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Surface featuring Human Scale. Until next time, goodbye.